you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Monday, March 14th, 2022. This is episode number 235. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you are listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 27,000 State of Cannabis News News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support the show. We'd love, to, we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about a Fresno police sergeant on meth, box after box of marijuana, $1.5 million mail delivery plot lands man in Bay County Jail, cannabis company confronts history of war on drugs by growing marijuana inside of prison, Tahoe to discuss on-site consumption, uh, the latest sign of Democrats' empty weed promises, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up on the stage. But keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. I'm going to start off today smoking some news. This first headline comes from Reason, and the headline is Brick Bat, I'm not sure what that means, Keeping It Off the Streets by Charles Oliver. I'm just, it's really short. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, Fresno, California Police Sergeant Donnie Donnell has been charged with robbery, illegal possession of meth, and DUI after police say he stole drugs from a suspect, used them, and then crashed his patrol car into a tree in the department's parking lot. Police Chief Paco Balderra said officers who rushed to the crash at first thought that Donnell had a heart attack. After realizing that his last call involved drugs, they thought he'd had an accidental exposure to fentanyl. Blood testing at the hospital found that he had meth and fentanyl in his system, and there was too much of it for an accidental exposure. The suspect in the case Donnell had handled told police Donnell said she could go free if she gave him her drugs, so she did. And I just want to read you guys the comments uh, on this story uh, from Fist of Etiquette. Fist of Etiquette says, the suspect in the last case Donnell had, had handled told police Donnell that she could go free if she gave him her drugs, so she did. His true co- crime was stealing those fees and fines from the department. The Duke of URL said, I anticipate that Sergeant Donnell will be hopefully turning, uh, quote, I anticipate that Sergeant Donnell will hopefully turning himself in that he will be booked into Fresno County Jail, said Fresno County District Attorney Lisa Sondergaard Smithcamp. Quote, he'll be treated like any other criminal suspect, unquote. And the Duke of URL says, hoping criminals turn themselves in is how they treat every other suspect, question mark. Social justice is neither, says only criminals with unions or political connections. Agamom says, in California, yes. 
uh, CGR 2727 says, and the woman who he coerced the drugs from, question mark, I'll bet they'll charge her with felony possession with intent to distribute battery of an officer and attempted murder. Earth-based human skeptic says, Danelle was probably conducting research and putting his life on the line. So brave. And the last one, don't look at me, uh, says, defentanyl the police. Wow. That's Fresno. Yeah, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of drugs in Fresno. It's really scary. I mean, I know we hear about fentanyl all over, and I know we have listeners from all over. But it's really, at least in California, I think it's becoming really personal now. A lot of people are really, you know, it's mixed with all these drugs. It's really scary. I love defentanyl, the police. That is so funny. But, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're going to enforce the law, you better be following the law. It's, it's not okay. Where's my siren? I just want to say it's a great story. This is awesome. Thanks, Susan. It's hilarious, kind of, but not. It Right. Exactly. It's very and sad. Drug, drugs are mm-mm bad. <laughs> I mean, what is that combo? Fentanyl and and meth? And what does that make you I feel I mean, like? any combination with fentanyl, you're just fucking, you're just asking for for some type of deadly reoccurrence. And, and it's just a real tragedy that uh, there is so much fentanyl in the streets and it keeps on coming in uh, to the U.S. from our Mexican border via China. I mean, is right, is blame it, China? <laughs> China, um, is it? Uh, is that a speedball? No, no. Speedball, it's, speedball it's is when you do meth and cocaine at the same time. It's literally coming from Chinese pharmaceutical companies. They are the ones that make it and distribute it. Right, but it's it's a it's it makes it's a downer, right? And meth, I don't know. I've never done either of these drugs, but. It just seems like a, a, a really risky combination. Try some fentanyl today. It's America's new cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, More man. like cup of death. Uh, good morning, everybody. I, a lot of uh, counterfeit Adderall and counterfeit Percocet are now being laced with fentanyl. And um, t- to my understanding, if someone overdoses on it, um, it gives that particular product even more street cred, so it's really a dangerous thing, especially for young people who are using these drugs that used to help them get through their studying or whatever, that they're now being contaminated with fent- not not being contaminated, they're actually being laced with fentanyl because you have to keep taking the fentanyl to keep the withdrawal syndrome symptoms from um, getting you. So that's why a lot of drug dealers are putting fentanyl in these drugs, these counterfeit drugs and the regular drugs. Is it is it expensive? Fentanyl is cheap as fuck. So I don't understand, you know, people that are dealing in fentanyl, why are they doing it? Fentanyl is a cutting agent that you use for drugs, and it's a much cheaper cutting agent than traditional cutting agents, which is why it's so prevalent in so many drugs across the country. Oh, okay. Steve. I was, I was actually uh, going to say just exactly what Jason Beck said. Holy crap. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, Stephen. You know, you can't you can't deny it, bro. <laughs> I can't deny it. Jason Beck is correct sometimes. Thanks, guys. Have a beautiful day. Rebecca, did you want to weigh in? Um, I was just going to add in, because I, I know you're not familiar with fentanyl. It started off as a drug that's used in surgeries and things like that. And so it is one of the ones that is born out of the opioid uh, crisis. So that's why people are going after it. The same reason that you would hear them go after Percocet or morphine and go after that. That's what they're looking for. That's the, per- that's the high that they're looking for with fentanyl. Um, I'm a 20-year pharmacy technician, so I'm familiar with medications. So that may, that may be hope- hopefully get you to understand like why the mentality behind um, people using it. Not to mention it's also because Joe Biden's a president and everyone just wants to die. Uh, no. Uh, no, 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 no. Don't they drug test cops? Uh, yeah, but you know, it's funny with drug testing, because um, I've had it done before, and I'm on a not, you know, a, a doctor-regulated um, opiate that I, I have to have and is really reined in. Um, but if you have any sort of script, any sort of reasoning for it, you go before, before your official results are given to your employer, um, 
they go through and say, hey, do you have a medical reason? And if you can produce any sort of prescription that explains it away, anything at all, then they don't report that to your employer or to whoever as a conflict because it is, is coming from a medical doctor. Does that make sense? Yeah, but he was also on meth. I mean, you know. And I, and I don't know with that. Yeah, I don't know all the details. The details with that with meth, sometimes that could be covered up by Adderall. Sometimes that, you know, if they have a script for Adderall, sometimes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Clifton. Yeah, I mean, just in regards to the drug testing, if you, I mean, it depends on what your employer is uh, drug testing you for. And there's a lot of drug testing regulations that are coming through the states. There's some stuff passing in Colorado that will not allow employers to test their employees unless they're clearly intoxicated. We have the same law in New York. Uh, and there was just uh, somebody who was upheld in Maine who lost their job uh, because of disability on medical cannabis. They, they found a positive cannabis test and they discharged him. Interestingly, he was working for a, 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 a wheelchair van company, a company that made wheelchair vans for disabled people. And they fired him after they found a positive cannabis test, even though he was using it medically. He won it, it, He won in the state Supreme Court. But um, but if your company has a zero tolerance, they can still fire you, even if you have a reason for the medication. There's just certain, like surgeons or pilots that can't be on morphine, even if they were given a prescription. They certainly can't work on it. Thank you so much for that. Um, Thank you, everybody, for weighing in on that headline. Uh, so we're going to keep moving. Up next is Jason Beck. Jason is the longest retailer in cannabis U.S. history and the highest supporter of safe banking. Jason, what's your headline today? Oh, good morning, Susan. Today, my story comes out of Florida, and it's got lots and lots and lots of boxes involved, where box after box of marijuana, that's right, $1.5 million in mail delivery plot lands a man in Bay County Jail. The Panama City Police Department thwarted a plan to send more than 190 pounds of marijuana through the mail, officials said on Friday. In a press conference at the police station, PCPD Corporal Kristen Shaw said the department responded in late January to the UPS store on 23rd Street, where employees noticed three large boxes that smelled like marijuana. A PCPD canine officer responded to the scene and was alerted to the presence of marijuana, Shaw said. The following day, officers intercepted a van driven by Younging Wang after he attempted to pick up the boxes, police said. Officers reported smelling the same marijuana odor coming from the van. The street crimes unit arrested Wang, 31, and charged him with trafficking in marijuana possession of a counter... Oh, hold on. Tra but charged him with trafficking in marijuana, possession of a counterfeit driver's license, provi providing a false ID to law enforcement officer, and possession of narcotics equipment. He was booked into the Bay County Jail. Police said seven boxes were mailed to Wang. They placed the street value of the marijuana at $1.5 million inside the boxes. Of the bags of marijuana were labeled with names of different strains, such as gelato, and that's right, you guessed it, blue. Uh, you guys all think I'm going to say blue dream, but it's not. It's blue cheese. Shaw said with such large amounts, the dealer is trying to break it down and sell it in gram increments to make more money, he said. The January seizure of marijuana is the largest in his PCPD tenor. And he also says, a lot of times we're investigating violent crimes involving drugs, Shaw said. Normally, it's marijuana that's involved. So not, not only do we get a large amount of marijuana off the streets in return, we also make the streets safer at, some, at the same time. Marijuana is the most common drug that police see in Panama City, Shaw said. And with the presence of medical marijuana in dispensaries, it has become a unique problem for law enforcement. Obviously, people that go go out and obtain marijuana the legal way. We want to support uh, their right and encourage them to do it in the legal way. But at the same time, individuals that are out here selling marijuana at the street level, the majority of the time, those individuals are armed. Those lead to violent encounters, Shaw said. And those are individuals that were targeting and trying to take off the streets. And PCPD officials said they are working to identify where the drugs came from 
well they were going to and who else was involved. I'm willing to bet that this weed came from either California or Oklahoma. How's that for an investigative process, PCPD? And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Jason, can you tell by the photos, uh, are those airtight bags? Why, why, did, why could you smell it? I mean, what an idiot. $1.5 million worth of pot. You don't even do anything to make sure it doesn't smell? Well, those are those are um, uh, freezer freezer bags, or not the freezer bags, but the uh, seal of meal type type bags that are used. That, and um, it looks like they're only bagged once, but generally if you're shipping that much, you should generally put a couple extra bags in there. One would think. Dryer uh, sheets help too. <laughs> Allegedly. Um also, I really, I don't know, I, I Google cannabis um, at least 10 times a day to, to keep up on the most current news, and the first thing I see when I Google it is drug, and I don't know, it just, I don't think that's right. I just don't think that we should classify cannabis as a drug. I hate hearing that. It's a flower. It's a plant. It's a vegetable. Eat your veggies. Right. Right. This is kind of, isn't it interesting that this is the same strains, like at least that we have in California that are like everywhere? I noticed that in the Alaska article the other day. It's like, is there any diversity of strains anymore? No, that, that, that's what sells. California weed is what sells. California names are what sell. It's always going to be California There names. would be diversity of cultivars if people were growing outdoors. Would you, Liz, would you smoke some New York weed that was called Big Apple Buds? Uh, I'd probably want to try it like once or try, you know, like get the taste of the area. I wouldn't even want to try it because that rates a 10 on my booth meter. I feel you on that. It's just like, is it just to me, it's like, okay, so is the legal system so tight that there's no other genetics in it? And if this is outside, you know, the, if this is outside that market, I just think it, this was funny. There was a lot of topics in here. It was in Florida. The guy's name was a little funny. The fact that he's trying to sell it by the gram is kind of hilarious. This was well, no, story. that's what law enforcement said. That's what law enforcement was presuming is that he was going to sell it all gram by gram, which actually makes them be able to equate that one and a half million dollar value. But the reality of it is anyone that has that many pounds of weed, you are not selling that shit gram by gram. You're trying to sell peas, half peas, quarter peas, and ounces at the smallest increment. So Man, what do you I think, think if we all had cop math, we would all be pretty loaded. <laughs> I mean, rich. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you think the real math is, Jason? $25 a gram, according to the DEA. All right. I guess we're done with Jason's headline. Thank you so much, Jason. Up next is Santa Barbara-based cannabis educator and brand strategist, Liz Rogan. She's an important link in, the California, in California's largest cultivation center and an important link for the show. Keeping the links to our news pinned to the top of the stage is because she has our Pinterest in mind. Liz Rogan, what have you got for us today? Thank you so much. And she can, she can pin while she's getting ready to do her story. It's amazing. Thank you. And I, I smoke much bigger than pinners. So thank you. <laughs> Greetings, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this Monday. My story comes from NBC News by Jordan Winter. And we are following along in the incarceration uh, prison lockup headline. But this is a good story. So the headline reads, Prison to Pot Farms Confront Legacy of War on Drugs. So despite cannabis being legal in multiple states, many people are still incarcerated. If you think about it, many of us can use cannabis and use it without fear, and we can now see that we work in the cannabis industry. But my story today focuses on a small but very impactful story of prisons, which are now closed, becoming licensed cannabis cultivation and manufacturing sites. In over 20 in 2020, over 350,000 people in the US were arrested for marijuana related violations, primarily in states where um, it, it's illegal, according to the FBI. So this is going to highlight two companies that are doing just that. Green Thumb Industries is a, a really large cannabis company all over. They're breaking ground on a former prison in Warwick, New York. This is the first of its kind in the state. CEO Ben Kovler said he uh, hopes that this will be the first cannabis company to fire in the state to hire former inmates. And they're hoping they're investing um, $150 million to turn it into a cultivation facility. And in Coalingo, California, we see a company that's actually making it happen right now. 
Dan Dalton and his sister Casey. Uh, Dan comes from the music industry originally, so he brought Damian Marley into this uh, as a partner into this venture. But they bought a 20-acre site in 2016 for $4.1 million. They decided it was a great location because it was really dry, stale, uh, dry, sterile, and it had a lot of like already had all the fences and a lot of security in place there. So they are the name of their company is Evidence. Um, they have eight acres growing right now. Um, prison remains, um, I'm sorry, people who work there, the head grower, he had been in prison. And so this is really personal to him. It's kind of neat. They bag up their product in evidence bags. They said it like gets conversation started. They donate profits to last prisoner project. Um, and so they really find that this is like, it's interesting. It's, it's people working in prison at the same time. There are other people are still serving time in prison. And so it's really interesting. I think it brings up a lot of mixed emotions for people. Critics say, you know, there's a lot of people who have been incarcerated and, you know, people of color still have a very small percentage of cannabis ownership of uh, in companies. So it's like, how do we continue to rectify that? But anyway, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about it. This is Liz Rogan. I'm here for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you, Liz. I, I know uh, the owners. Well, I know one of the owners of, of this uh, company. And she was telling me that the first time that they went into the prison, it was so eerie. It was as if uh, the, everyone had just left it, you know, it just just disappeared, and there was stuff everywhere. And um, she went around and was looking, and she saw evidence bags, and she got really emotional. And this this uh, this brand was born. It, it's an authentic brand. It, you know, it was it was born from a place of of compassion. I I. I really respect what they're doing. Um, they are, they're struggling just like everyone else in the industry. Um, I know one time uh, their crop, they had a, a helicopter above their field and they thought that they were being raided, but they found out that the helicopter thought they were, the helicopter was there to spray bug spray on the school that was nearby and they were spraying their plants instead. I don't know if it was an accident or not, but they, they've had a lot of uh, struggles getting this company up and running, but I, I sure hope they make it. Well, I, I like the idea of repurposing uh, a structure. However, I would think that there'd be a lot of PTSD going on for uh, people who serve time and then being working in a prison uh, environment. I hope they did some major saging and praying to purify the energy in the space. Just my thought. Yeah, I, I get PTSD every time I go into a courtroom, so I hear you, but maybe that's the best medicine? I don't know. Shock therapy is the best therapy. <laughs> Are you coming from experience, Jason? Fuck yeah, people need to fucking pull their tissues out of their pockets and wipe their eyes and, and, and just get to work and fucking get the fucking job done. Let's get it done. Thank you. Yes. And it's affordable, right? This is a really affordable brand. So affordable generally means it's fucking boof. <laughs> uh, wait, I'm trying to get Mary up. Well, the other uh, thing to think about if you get PTSD when you're re-entering these spaces, you know, uh, the cannabis has been shown to speed your benefit from therapeutic healing, you know, uh, from exposure or from just therapy for PTSD. So actually, you know, it may be working in, in, in a not so subtle way to help release PTSD. True. Facts. All right. Oh, and also they have a, uh, consumption lounge. So if you're driving from L.A. to San Francisco, it's right about halfway, not suggesting that you consume and drive, but Go check it out. For the passengers in your car. <laughs> For the passengers, yes, definitely. Or you could stay at Harris Ranch. Just call it a day. All right, we're going to keep moving. Up next is Dr. Felicia. She is a dual board certified physician helping people understand how much power they have over their health while using cannabis as medicine. Dr. Felicia, what's your headline today? Uh, happy Monday, everyone. Thank you, Susan. Uh, my headline comes from NPR station 90.5 WESA. 
a Pennsylvania company becomes the first in the U.S. to raise marijuana legally for medical research, written by An Lee Herring. For more than a half a century, federal law stopped all private sector companies from selling the Schedule One drug for medical research. But York County-based Groff North America said it became the first business in the country last month to bring a cannabis crop to market legally for scientific study. Originally a hemp company, the Pennsylvania firm was one of just four nationally to win approval from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency last spring to sell their product for medical and scientific purposes. Before, researchers had been restricted since 1968 to using only cannabis from a center at the University of Mississippi. Groff North America founder and chief medical officer Dr. Stephen Groff called the liberalization of DEA policy a huge catalyst to unleashing the American scientific community. For the first time, real-world marijuana will be available to researchers throughout the country, he said. We're working with some of the top institutions in America and providing new types of material that heretofore wasn't available from Mississippi. Following its first federally sanctioned harvest, Groff North America was required to turn the crop over to the DEA before buying it back and selling it. That transfer took place February 2nd, according to the company, which said it was the first such transaction between a for-profit and the federal government. Groff said the process is a formality required under a United Nations treaty that aims to prevent uh, drug abuse. But despite the cost of compliance, he said, the new line of business comes with a lot of upside. We see a number of opportunities to provide revenue, and then ultimately our long-term play is to become a pharmaceutical manufacturer of a number of cannabis-based drugs, he said. So far, Groff North America has roughly 10 customers, ranging from major universities to large com- chemical companies, according to Groff. Beyond supplying marijuana to other entities, the company plans to develop treatments in collaboration with other firms, Groff said. An early project will explore the possibility of using certain cannabinoids as antibiotics to treat MRSA, a type of bacteria that causes severe skin and soft tissue infections. In addition, Groff said that he sees potential to create medications for anxiety, sleep problems, post-traumatic stress disorder, and depression. I recently had an opportunity to hear Dr. Groff speak on a podcast, and in my opinion, he represents probably the majority or the average physician who may be open to cannabis, however, want a standardized plant extract to work with. The average physician doesn't have time to start low and go slow. Um, There are physicians that do that who write recommendations and and work with, with people to help them find the right dose for them, but the vast majority of physicians, in my experience, want something that they can um, count on to work the same way every time and just write it on a prescription pad. The other thing that came out of that interview was that his company is not only raising cannabis to for other people to do research on, he's also selling to other businesses and he is, his company is the only one who has the permission to export, export to the rest of the world. And lastly, what came out of that interview that I listened to, he has been talking to a lot of people in the FDA and the feeling is that cannabis will be moved from schedule one to schedule two. It will not be descheduled anytime soon. So um, I was sad to hear that. um, And I hope that we can change that. But if it goes from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, in my opinion, people will still be locked up for this plant because it's still illegal on the federal level. I'm Dr. Felicia Dawson reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What are you all's thoughts? Not only that, Dr. Felicia, if it goes from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, it would basically eliminate all of the infrastructure built in all these different states of the industry, which we actually know, know of it as, because Schedule 2 drugs, would we would be subject to the FDA, and every single product that we create in the cannabis space would be considered an adulterated product because none of it has passed any FDA clearance. Well, that's part of my issue with this, the corporatization of medicine in general. Um, you know, it, they want it to be be able to be patented. They want it to be a single or two agent thing, and it's that's just not what this plan is about. Um, I know you all hate the word drug, but it, probably twenty five percent of the pharmaceuticals on the market coming from plants. Plants are medicine, um, so 
that's kind of where that's kind of where this this industry it seems to be going. It's, it seems like it's trying to be monopolized by large players, and the small craft growers are being left out to dry. Go ahead, Jason. I was going to say, Dr. Felicia, I couldn't agree with you more. You have all these MSOs trying to play these major power grabs and and capture market share and cripple market share by not by not allowing interstate trade, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. Changing it to Schedule Two would just be such a disaster. I'd, you know, I I like to say you can't. The genie can get back in the bottle, but in this case, I, you know, I just don't see the industry allowing that to happen. It, I, I can't even imagine it. That's my personal biggest fear: is that they're going to pull these THC caps on recreational slash adult use. And then the big pharma is going to come in and take anything that's higher and say, oh, it's medicine. No, big pharma is going to isolate it as different, different isolates. And they're going to have the, have the THC isolate. They're going to have the CBD isolate. They're going to have all of these different things. And we're not going to be able to sell anything because they're going to have drug preclusion. And that's what ultimately happened. Yeah, and he, he also pointed out the fact that uh, CBD might be, a, uh, might be a wrap also because of ep- Epidiolex. Um, I understand that Charlotte's Web uh, presented a bunch of information to the FDA trying to get their um, thing passed, and because of Epidiolex, it was an issue, I, I believe. Yay, we have a lawyer on the stage. Victoria, what did you want to say about Dr. Felicia's headline? I wanted to jump in on the FDA point that they just ended, um, and I'm, I'm moving, mid-move, so happy to be listening in, but wanted to jump in on this story only. Um, just to say that right now there is drug preclusion. Some of the proposed bills, meaning that if something is regulated as a drug, then it's precluded from being in food or being sold otherwise. A lot of legislation proposed, including like States Reform Act, and I actually think even the CAOA would legislatively not have drug preclusion al- apply. So then it wouldn't be a problem that they're regulated as drugs. But I also think important in this conversation, which I've heard come up, is whether or not the synthetic versus naturally occurring. So like synthetic could be being regulated as drugs. Um, and then naturally occurring could be some of the legislation even says recognized as safe, designated generally recognized as safe, meaning it could be as, you know, a dietary supplement, food additive, um, but there's a lot of ways it could go, and it's not clear to me. But I agree. The worst thing, I think, would be to reschedule it. But even then, that could just be the synthetic version. And so um, it's a messy legal landscape, and hopefully I helped make it messier. But great story. Yeah, thanks for that, Victoria. <laughs> um, oh, shoot. Okay, we're past the half-hour point, so we're going to go ahead and do a relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. All right, we're going to keep smoking the news. Up next, we've got Adelia Carrillo. She is the CMO of Event High, advisor of ICBWA, and co-founder of Blunt Brunch. What you got for us today, Adelia? Good morning, everyone. So today's article is called The City to Discuss On-Site Cannabis Consumption Parking Authority Bylaws. Um, This is from Lake Tahoe, um, and I'm going to just focus on the cannabis component, um, which is valid for this this conversation. So the South Lake Tahoe City Council will be hammering out the details um, of on-site consumption of cannabis at dispensaries on Tuesday, March 15th. The idea was brought up by the Cannabis Subcommittee during its October 19th, 2021 meeting. Um, the council actually directed staff to draft an ordinance, um, and the, or- the subcommittee also recommended that they increased canopy size for cultivation. So, so far, there's been two versions of the ordinance drafted, one allowing on-site consumption and one continuing to prohibit it. The Planning Commission approved the first version, and they also asked, though, for energy efficiency, renewable energy requirements for businesses as well. Um, If the council approves the ordinance, 
Cannabis businesses can apply for a public safety license, which would allow them to add a consumption lounge. Just a few ordinance uh, requirements um, are as follows. A ventilation plan is needed to uh, and must be designed to prevent flow of smoke to all other areas of retail establishment and neighboring businesses and properties. There is a requirement um, for employees to be present in consumption area at all times and be trained to assist customers to avoid overconsumption of edibles. There's also a requirement that the business to cut off service to impaired patrons uh, and provide option for safe ride home for customers such as shuttle, taxi, or rideshare service. Um, a couple other things that was notated, any un- any opened or unfinished cannabis products must be securely repackaged before leaving the site. And cannabis products ingested, smoked, or vaped in consumption lounges must be purchased on site. So finally, the consumption lounge must be a separate indoor space or separate outdoor space not visible to the public and situated and ventilated to prevent odors perceptible to neighbors' properties with a separate entrance from the retail store. Um, in addition, there was one more thing notated the to the ordinance changes. Council will consider a second agenda item to establish a cab- cannabis revenue grant program process and guidelines. If anybody's interested in checking out um, the meeting, they can view it in person if you are in Lake Tahoe or you um, can view it remotely on Channel 21. Uh, and this is Adelia Carrillo, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. We've got a, f- a friend of the show that's on that council. He's been mayor of South Lake Tahoe. Cody Bass owns, um, I think it's South Lake Tahoe Wellness. I can't remember the name of it. Jason, do you know? Uh, but he's he has to re- recuse himself from any of these cannabis issues. So uh, they're still moving forward, and that's great. I look forward to going back to South Lake Tahoe when I can go to a consumption lounge. Agreed. And all the requirements seem pretty valid. Oh, sorry, Priscilla. Go on ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, if I'm in South Lake Tahoe, the only place I want to be smoking on is on the lake. I'm sure the environmentalists love that one, Priscilla. Hey, we're all naturalists if you're in cannabis. Yeah, cannabis smoke is not the same as cigarette smoke. So... I just wanted to say, I think overall that it's great to see these consumption lounges moving forward because like a year ago, they weren't even really being discussed. So though there's a lot of challenges that we're facing, I think it's overall moving forward. A a small but uh, point that I I do want to pull up is that no cannabis smoke is not the same as tobacco smoke. You know, combusting tobacco gives you about 4,000 toxins. Uh, combusting uh, cannabis gives you about 2,000, but they do share about 160 of the same toxins when you when you burn plant material, just, well, for, another, just for accuracy. Okay, and I appreciate that. But another thing is, is that we don't leave uh, butts around, and those cigarette butts are so toxic to the environment. So there's a difference okay, there, too. I'll give you that. We people 100% leave butts around. That is total fake. Okay. Well, I smoke mine down to practically nothing. It's not you think it's the same? No, I don't think it's the same, but at the same time to say that to say that we don't do it is is not is not realistic cuz we 100% do. Well, if you do that, stop it. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, we're going to keep on moving cuz we've got some really really Juicy topics still. Up next, we've got Shalina Panu. She's an attorney at law focusing on cannabis entertainment and psychedelics. Founder of the cannabis blog and podcast, Shall We Toke? What have you got today, Shalina? Thank you so much, Susan. Good morning, everyone. My headline for today is former cannabis executive files complaint against Lowell Farms and more. Kevin Lawrence, who is the plaintiff in this matter, has filed a complaint against Lowell Farms, Indus Holding, Cypress Manufacturing Company, Edible Management LLC, and Wells Innovation Group, Kelly Jose McMillan, Kevin McGrath, and Robert Weekly Jr., Forbes report on this over the weekend, so if you want to look at the link, you can do that. And I also included the complaint here if you want to read that as well. Um, the complaint causes of action are as follows. Hostile work environment sexual harassment, quid pro quo sexual harassment, retaliatory uh, termination, failure to prevent harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, premises liability. 
the complaint alleges that plaintiff was subjected to severe and pervasive sexual harassment, both hostile work environment and quid pro quo, as a result of unwanted sexual advances and other discriminatory conduct. Here's a list of the alleged complaints. On July 8, 2020, during a raunchy work party held at the CCO's home in Salinas, California, McMillan's wife made sexual advances toward plaintiff and his wife, such as fondling herself while talking about her own breasts, genitalia, and sexual desires. Mrs. McMillan's conduct was observed by McMillan and other officers and directors who were consuming large amounts of alcohol and Schedule One drugs. Further, the complaint states that Lawrence spoke to Ainsworth about Mrs. McMillan's conduct, but his concerns were dismissed with Ainsworth suggesting that plaintiffs steer clear of the McMillans. In January 2021, two of Lawrence's female subordinates complained about chronic sexism and harassment by one of George's guys, meaning a manager who had close ties to George Allen, the chairman of the board and majority shareholder. Lawrence notified Ainsworth that he planned to conduct an investigation, but the CEO rejected the idea, explaining that the harasser had been knighted by Mr. Allen. A few weeks later, the two men who reported the harassment by George's guys were terminated and paid money to sign confidentiality agreements. On April 28, 2021, Lawrence attended a work function in Salinas, after which he and McGrath were invited to stay the night at Weekly's home in neighboring Monterey. After Lawrence had gone to bed, he was awakened by a nude and heavily impaired McGrath who had come into plaintiff's room and began dancing. Lawrence acted like he was asleep, hoping McGrath would leave. Instead, McGrath got into bed with Lawrence and assumed a spoon position such, such that McGrath's genitals were touching plaintiff's buttocks. Lawrence lay frozen in fear for several minutes until McGrath got up and left. As with previous incidents, Lawrence reported the sexual harassment to Ainsworth, who dismissed it as much more as much as more misconduct by an untouchable. On May 25th, 2021, Lawrence attended another ribald work event at the McMillan home in uh, Salinas. This time, Mrs. Lawrence did not attend. Like the year before, most of the officers and, and directors were present as they consumed heavy amounts of alcohol and drugs. They observed Ms. Mil Mrs. McMillan make sexual advances towards Lawrence. By the end of the party, the McMillans had revealed to Lawrence that they were active swingers and urged plaintiff to join them sometime soon and to bring his wife too. The complaint further alleges that although the McMillans did not know the details about Lawrence's history of childhood sexual abuse, they likely sensed he was more susceptible to quid pro quo sexual manipulation than a normally healthy person. However, the McMillans did not know that the fact that Kevin McMillan was previously a chief police officer who would be especially disturbing to plaintiff since he was kidnapped and raped when he was 12 years old by two, two men who claimed to be law enforcement officers. On May 26, 2021, McMillan told Lawrence he gave his cell phone number to his wife. The wife sent plaintiff a message, and they exchanged several messages describing the McMillan's collective swinging activity, stating that defendant approved of his wife recruiting plaintiff and also plaintiff's wife as sex partners for them both. The text messages state that they check out couples' profiles to see who they are both attracted to, and that defendant has a local girlfriend, girlfriend that his wife states she found for her husband, and that his conversation would come up that night. And that this conversation would come up that night while her husband was having sex with her. Hours later, she sent plaintiff a message about concerns regarding the company. And then hours later, she sent a photo of defendant giving his wife oral sex as she lay on her back nude looking up at the camera. The next morning, the wife sent plaintiff a message about her conversation with her husband the night before that involved notes prepared by defendant with his wife. And it is labeled as Kevin's script. It states that defendant has good friends at the company, but that nobody knows and that they don't talk about lifestyle stuff to vanillas ever. And they expect the same. Further, it states that they need to know the circumstances, whether or not plaintiff's wife knows and if she was cool with it, since the chances of them all being together at dinner is high, so they need to know what everyone else knows. She further states her concern of plaintiff's wife not knowing, and then once she finds out, she could go apeshit and that she could that could risk plaintiff's job. Defendant's wife offered plaintiff four dates in June when they could have sex, and he chose June 8, 2021. Defendant's wife demanded to know if plaintiff's wife knew about their plans, emphasizing that defendant wants to know. Plaintiff replied that his wife did not know about June 8th and then immediately insisted that plaintiff send her a photograph of his erection to which he sent her. The next day, while the defendants were in the, on their way to Vegas, defendant's wife messaged plaintiff about defendant's growing concerns about getting caught and to not fuck up because defendant doesn't want to have to discipline the guy who was banging his wife. He replied saying he, do, he doesn't fuck up. He's a professional working as a corporate executive for 25 years. Later, defendant's wife sent plaintiff an erotic image. On May 29, 2021, the defendant sent plaintiff um, two recorded sex videos with another couple in Vegas showing defendant's wife having sex with the woman and defendant watching. She also sent nude photos of herself by the pool with defending standing next to her. 
Plaintiff did not reply, and the defendant's wife later sent another message saying, who was hoping that wasn't too much for you. The following day, she sent more sex pictures, including one showing defendant having sex with a different couple with her text reading, my man getting after it with his little hottie and her hubs. Plaintiff did not reply, nor did he reply the next day to her multiple messages and photos. The day after the defendant's wife, con- the day after that, defendant's wife continued to send messages, and by June 1st, she asked if everything was okay, and if, she- if he was changing course, then he should let her know. Plaintiff did not reply, and by June 2nd, defendant sent plaintiff a message to call him, to which he replied to the wife saying, morning. She replied stating, dude, what's going on? Totally understand if you need to call this off. I'll be disappointed, by, but I understand your situation, of course. I just need to know, for planning purposes. Defendant set up a date with his girlfriend at our house for Tuesday night. He will need to change that. Plaintiff called defendant, and defendant states how, stated how upset he was at him for not paying attention to his wife, stating she's upset that you're not responding to her. When she gets upset, I get upset. Unable to tell the truth, plaintiff instead told defendant he was afraid his wife would see the messages, which seemed, which seemed to trigger defendant's anxiety that plaintiff's wife could potentially go apeshit and all of them and call them all out. As such, plaintiff canceled the June sex, June 8th sex date. On June 3rd, defendant's wife sent plaintiff a photo of her bare buttocks as she stood next to her desk at work, teasing with, come bend me over this desk, baby, and then quickly stated, I wasn't going to message you. Sorry, I'm weak. On June 4th, defendant's wife sent plaintiff a link to a swingers resort in Mexico, suggesting him and his wife try it out since it's the way, since it's the way they've heard other couples start that lifestyle. Plaintiff replied saying that the, his wife asked if he thought about swinging with the defendants and made it clear to plaintiff it was not going to happen, stating she's not into it. Defendant's wife replied saying, wow, how did that come up? Out of the blue? Just seems odd to me. Have to admit it freaked me the fuck out when you messaged that. Defendant's wife kept sending graphic pictures of her and her husband engaged in swinger sex and uh, procession activities. His replies were far and few between. Defendant's wife sent her final, her final graphic message on June 14, 2021, to which he did not reply. On June 29, 2021, the plaintiff sent defendant's wife apologizing for being the dark because her name kept popping for being in the dark because he her name kept popping up on his phone and his wife asked why does it say her name. He stated he freaked out and realized he can't sex all the time since he'll get caught. On September 17, 2021, plaintiff was terminated for reporting, opposing, and witnessing his defendant's violation of law and purchase and possession of Schedule One drugs. Plaintiff is asking the court for past and future economic and non-economic damages, punitive damages, attorney fees and costs, civil penalties, injunctive relief, and other proper relief. What are your thoughts on this complaint? I know this is very long and as thorough as I can possibly do, um, but I just wanted to get your guys' opinion on this. Um, my name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. It's such a crazy story. It makes you wonder if what is not being said too. It's 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 crazy. Uh, I don't know, but when we were talking about when, at the first dinner party when she was fucking fondling herself, I was just like, oh man, she must have done some Molly and she's feeling herself. <laughs> wow, I mean, this story is like so graphic. It's hilarious. The Forbes article obviously didn't get that detail, so I wanted to give. I wanted to just focus on the complaint, what was alleged in there. Where are all these sex tapes available at, uh, Shalina? (laughs) I don't know, Jason. (laughs) Oh, my God. So when – Thomas, did you want to weigh in? All I was going to say is that I moved across the country to do PR for 10 in-house Indus brands back in the summer of 2019. This story is just – Fucking crazy. Holy shit. <laughs> so what do you do? How, how do you handle the PR on this if you're lulls? You change oh, your name? I No, I, I no longer do the PR there because four months into it, uh, and I do air quotes, they went bankrupt. The CFO left. This guy got hired. Um, and then like a couple months later, they merged slash acquired lull for four. No, but years. I mean, what would you do? How do you, how would you even handle oh. a story like this? <laughs> uh, I'd probably resign. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about this some more. Does anyone else want to weigh in before we move on? All right. Up next is Priscilla Agoncillo. She's a Canamamipreneur, multi-award-winning influencer, CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League, and a smoking superhero. She's also known for keeping elected officials accountable and having some really, really great weed. Priscilla, what's your headline? Thanks, Susan. It's really hard to follow Shalina's 
steamy story there, but uh, legal gray area leaves potential cannabis growers in limbo. Uh, It's been a month since the Mississippi Medical Cannabis Act was signed into law, but cannabis cultivators are unsure about how to proceed. The signed legislation doesn't specify if greenhouses are considered indoor or outdoor. According to the law, outdoor grow is strictly prohibited. On page two, the bill reads, cannabis cultivation facility means a business entity licensed and registered by the Mississippi Department of Health that acquires, grows, cultivates and harvests medical cannabis in an indoor, enclosed, locked, and secure area. Local legislators are on the fence that greenhouses do not offer the same level of security as brick-and-mortar structures. In attempts to find some clarity from the Mississippi Department of Health, the author of this article called the department asking if greenhouses are considered indoor or outdoor, and they were told that the, the department doesn't have an answer at that time. Uh, Potential growers are really hoping that they have more clarification from MSDH. Uh, Currently, they have not stated a time frame that they will provide additional guidance on uh, greenhouse growing. Uh, I know Jason only prefers indoor, so uh, this is a booth situation for him. But uh, for all of the other growers, many of them are already trying to put frames up for greenhouses. They're arguing that you can enclose a greenhouse, you could put doors and locks on greenhouses. Uh, so they're really pushing it forward. I personally love greenhouse grown gas. Um, so I hope that they are able to actually grow in greenhouses because, uh, um, I don't believe that, uh, people should only have the option to grow indoor. This is Priscilla reporting for the state of cannabis news hour. Why would you make growing cannabis outside illegal? I don't understand that at all. Greenhouse and gas together is an oxymoron, Priscilla. Uh, to you. To the world, girl! <laughs> I'm a big fan well, of just greenhouse like, grown. Yeah, well, just like the wine growers, you know, the the terpenes coming off of cannabis and hemp can may affect their, their crops, so that's why some people have an issue with outdoor grows. Although I think the plant loves being outdoors, um, just trying to reintegrate it into our society is another issue. Didn't Nevada do something weird about outdoor and indoor when they first um, created the law you could only grow outside and then I forget what it was but they definitely did the switcheroo so uh, welcome to the ever-shifting landscape of cannabis business. I wanted to ask one of the attorneys on the stage now um, whoever called to try to get clarification on whether or not greenhouses were cool or not, that answer sounded kind of iffy. Would you all have any recommendations on how someone can actually get a definitive answer regarding some legislation that had just been passed? Greenhouse is trash. Destroy them all. <laughs> Again, all uh, correspondence opinions are their own. Thank you. It is a really good point, though, with cross-pollination and with hemp and other things. I wonder what's going to happen in terms of like what uh, legally would happen if, if your cannabis crop was pollinated by a hemp crop or something like that. I'm currently pollinating my entire neighborhood with blue cheese. It's just interesting. I think they'll have to be, you know, with the way seeds are and with Monsanto and other things and protecting IP and other things, I think it'll be interesting. And then, you know, crop crop challenges agricultural challenges it's like it'll be neat to see do the attorneys on stage have any insight on if that'll do you think that'll just play out for a while or is there going to be any big suits in that i don't think there will be unless you know everyone can organize and get together on a suit um personally there should be home grows allowed i believe outdoor uh you know, there's other areas that have done it right where, you know, they restrict certain areas uh, or, you know, they, they allow for some space and buffer, um, you know, between uh, outdoor uh, crops uh, so that, you know, they can address the cross-pollination issue. Um, but I don't think any of these methods of growing cannabis should be uh, controlled in this way at all. Thank you so much for that headline. Uh, Jason has another headline. We're about to get Politico. Jason, what's your second headline? Oh, yeah, Susan, here we go. Some, just so you know, trigger warning, because some people are definitely going to start crying after this one. Where a budget deal 
is the latest sign of Democrats' empty weed promises. On the brink of gaining control in Washington, Senator Chuck Schumer said empathetically in 2020 that I'm going to do everything I can to end federal prohibition on marijuana if Democrats took back the Senate. But 14 months since winning the Senate, Democrats haven't even succeeded at challenging the little things. This week's offered the most dramatic example yet of Democrats' inability to make any progress on their cannabis promises. The new government spending package released on Wednesday continues to prohibit Washington, D.C. from establishing a cannabis marketplace more than seven years after district voters overwhelmingly backed legalization. That wasn't the only weed provision left on the cutting room floor, though. The spending bill also uh, failed to protect state-regulated cannabis markets, nor did it expand medical cannabis research or protect veterans who use cannabis. Two issues with widespread bipartisan backing. I'm very frustrated and really disappointed, said Representative Lou Correa, who I think is a stand-up Democrat, just in my opinion, a champion of cannabis policy changes. Polling in this polling in this country is off the charts. That's what people want to normalize the use of cannabis. So what's the hang up? Lou says it's it's just the latest example of Democrats inability to accomplish meaningful change on cannabis policy when it is seemingly within their grasp. Earlier this year, Senate Democrats removed language from the National Defense Authorization Act that would have made it easier for industry to access banking services. That legalization has twice cleared the House with huge majorities, including more than 100 Republicans, but has made no progress in the Senate. It's where bills go to die. Democrats have been locked in an internal debate about the correct approach to overhauling federal cannabis policies. Schumer and other key senators have resisted phenomenal changes, insisting that any cannabis legalization address broader criminal justice reforms, even though there's little evidence that they can corral 60 votes for a major package. Democrats insist they still plan to make changes to federal cannabis policy in this Congress. Uh, remaining nine months, uh, Schumer, Senator Cory Booker, and Senator Ron Wyden released draft legislation to federally decriminalize and regulate cannabis last summer but the former bill has yet to materialize. Schumer said last month that he hopes to introduce it in April, although time is running out for passing such a substantial bill before the end of 2022. The path for marijuana legalization has always faced hurdles, but the discussion around marijuana legalization has advanced further in 15 months than over the last decade because of Democratic leadership, Schumer said in a statement told to Politico on Friday. And that's what I say you say when you ain't going to get anything done. The lack of progress on cannabis policy is the is illustrative of the fa- of the larger failures of Democrats to follow through on their campaign promises from immigration reform to President Sleepy Joe Biden's social spending bill. In the end, additional pandemic aid was even removed from the 2022 budget due to squabbling amongst House Democrats over how to pay for it. When confronted with these failures, Democrats point to the to the many hurdles they've faced since taking office, including the war in Ukraine, which actually just recently started, so that's not really a hurdle, and a single vote majority in the Senate, which has been the situation since the beginning. Representative Earl Blumenhauer, who I also like and respect, Democrat of Oregon, a longtime champion of medical le- marijuana legalization, called the behind-the-scenes budget negotiations a collapse of the entire appropriations process, com- uh, complaining that back room deliberations gave individual lawmakers too much veto power over small small provisions. A leadership source, meanwhile, told Politico that Republican leadership drew a line in the sand on legacy riders, meaning that pushing for removal on the prohibition of D.C. sales, known as the Harris Rider, could have been a poison pill for the budget bill. But ultimately, the buck stops with Democrats who have slim majorities in both chambers and are going ultimately going to lose the House and probably the Senate come uh, <laughs> November. Probably the most important power of the majority leader is the ability to put bills on the floor, Schumer told Politico in April of 2021 when he announced his plan to federally decriminalize cannabis. John Hudak, another friend of mine and expert in cannabis policy at the Brookings Institution, argues that no legislator is going to vote against the federal budget because it removes the Harris Rider, which was originally introduced by Representative Andy Harris, a Republican from Maryland. I can guarantee you, Hudak said, if Chuck Schumer wanted the Harris Rider removed, the Harris Rider would be removed. Ultimately, Hudak said, Denim 
Democrats can't be blamed for not getting comprehensive reform across the finish line, especially when they have such a narrow margin in the Senate. But their inability to pass smaller provisions shows the lengths to which leadership is willing to fight for cannabis policy. In fact, many dumbfounded advocates and frustrated pro-cannabis lawmakers pointed on Wednesday to the broad support among voters for cannabis legalization. 18 states, the District of Columbia, and three territories have legalized uh, adult-use cannabis in the last decade. Two-thirds of American voters support legalization, including half of the Republican voters and 83% of Democrats. Why isn't it translating into cannabis policy on Capitol Hill? However, it's unclear. You give us both chambers, you give us the president, and we'll give you cannabis, Korea said. On Wednesday, adding that Democrats made the same similar promises in 2020 on immigration policy, which also has yet to receive its day in Congress. What has happened? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. The Democrats have no spine and can't pass a, pass a decent bill if their life depended on it. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the Pass Safe Banking. Thank you so much, Jason. We're over time. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day just to, to bring us just what we need to know. And thank you so much, team. I really appreciate you. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. Thank you, guys. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Your daily dose. I love y'all. Bye. Bye bye.